All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew 13. I'm ready to go. Are you guys? Good. What? I can't hear you. Yeah, okay, all right. Turn to Matthew 13. Uh, we kind of ended abruptly last week. Sorry. Um, but what we were talking about is parables. So Matthew 13, Jesus, this prophesied Messiah, is now here. He's now uh, speaking to people. He's making his ministry very well known. And he's speaking to them in ways that maybe they don't understand. And we talked about how even the disciples were like, well, you know, Jesus, why, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to them like this? And he, he told them that. And so as we move through this, we, we got to about uh, halfway through mustard seeds and, and leaven. Okay, so if you're in chapter 13, uh, you're going to find mustard seeds and leaven. And if you are using your copy of the Bible, then you probably have headings there to help you, you find those verses that we're going to be at. But before we get there, I do want to talk to you about what the overall theme of today's and last week's message really is, which is this. Jesus teaches about the kingdom, and although unrecognized or perhaps rejected by many, it is currently hidden in plain sight. And not only is it hidden in plain sight, but it is accomplishing its purpose and will one day be revealed to all, either for their glory or destruction. And so last week, we, got, we were able to get through uh, the first two parables, parables one and two, of the sower and the weeds. And really what I think that's talking about is this mystery of the kingdom. And so as we go through this, you're going to see today, we're going to finish talking about then the cost of the kingdom and uh, the growth of the kingdom, and then our response based off these parables that Jesus is going to be telling them as well as us. So 1 and 2, dealing with saved and lost. 3 and 4, dealing with growth. 5 and 6, dealing with uh, Jew and Gentile and how the kingdom is actually obtained. And then there's a seventh parable, uh, and maybe an eighth. I haven't decided. I'll let you decide, because uh, who am I to decide for you? Seven's the good Bible number, right? So we want to end at seven, because that's what feels good preaching-wise, right? That's the, but I don't, there might be eight. You can decide. But anyway, um, so this is the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. He's preaching in such a way that those who are going to hear it would hear it and dig deeper, and those who won't hear it are just going to continue to be lost, which seems unloving. But there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk about that as we move through this. So if you would, will you join with me in prayer? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. God, we thank you for this chapter 13 of Matthew that we get to finish today. We ask that you would guide and train our hearts, that as we come in contact with your word, no matter what it is, parable or otherwise, when we come in contact with the holy, living word of God, it demands a response from us. So I pray that the response collectively here today would be one of humble submission to who you are and what you're doing. So God, we invite you to be a, a part of the service. We invite you to be the, the uh, crowning jewel of the service. We invite your Holy Spirit now to speak to our hearts, that whatever this man says might be forgotten if it's not from you and from your word. And so we ask that you would grow your saints for the kingdom, and it's in your name we pray, amen. So as we talk about this unlikely kingdom or this king that's supposed to come, this Messiah, this promised king, of course we've talked about the mystery of this kingdom, who would have thought that it would be so mysterious that it's born of a virgin in a little town to a carpenter guy? No, kings are supposed to be born in palaces, right? The wise men came and they were looking for him and it wasn't where they thought he would be. That's because the kingdom of God is often 
a mystery. But as we look at parable three, this mustard seed, uh, there's a couple things that we didn't, I don't think, cover uh, last week that I want to make sure we do today. So without further ado, verse 31 through 32, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I have some pictures here for you. Uh, These are mustard seeds. I'm sure you've seen them before. If you cook at all or anything like that, I don't, so I had to Google them. Uh, But this is what they look like. There's yellow seeds and there's black mustard seeds. And of course, you've probably seen this kind of famous picture of faith so small, right? This a very small seed. Of course, we'll get there in Matthew. We'll get there so you can hold your horses for that that scripture when we get there. But it's a very small seed, absolutely. And I like this picture too because it shows us what the first couple parables were about. The sower, remember what we talked about, the sower scatters the seed. What's the problem? It's not the sower and it's not the seed. It must be the soil, right? And so here's a field and there's the path. And you can almost visualize the, the birds coming through and snatching up the stuff out of the path and how it grows up, and in there, you can also see where they might not be able to distinguish between the, the actual mustard plants or the, the wheat or whatever and the, and the weeds. You can see how this might be hard for them. I, I know some of you are thinking, well, isn't that just a field of weeds, Pastor? Maybe, but Google told me it was mustard, so I don't know. But I can tell you this, uh, there, there's a stone dedicated to where this area is at over there. You can see there's, there's, uh, there's Hebrew writing on there as well as English. And so that's a man who, who went, I don't know the man, I, again, Google, uh, I found this. This is how tall they can grow. Uh, here's a picture of, you know, a bird uh, perching in the, the branches of this little mustard plant. But, but here's the other cool thing is we have to understand, I think most of these pictures, if we're honest, we're probably taking over in, in California somewhere in America because there's different kinds of, of plants, right? There's different kinds of mustard as we just showed you with the seeds. And I think over in Israel, over in the Middle East, they look more like this. And so this is why you can see that he's talking about here, it gets bigger than any of these other plants, and the, the birds actually come and nest in their branches. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the leaven and the birds and how I had mentioned some of those things and my thoughts on those. Some of you may have agreed with that, some of you may have not. But I want to show you something in the text. So that was fun, right? What it talks about for mustard seeds is that these plants grow rapidly. Now, now, keep in mind what Jesus is saying here. So this is God's word, and I'm going to read you from Encyclopedia Britannica what they say about mustard plants, because I, I find it very interesting. Hopefully you will too. It's a very small seedlings. The plants grow rapidly and enter a phase of dense flowering. The blossoms have an intense yellow color. The plant reaches their full height of about five to six and a half feet. And as their flower fades and after numerous green seed pods appear on their branches... The pods of the brown mustard contain about 20 seeds, and those of the white mustard contain about 8 seeds. Mustard plants are easy and inexpensive to grow. They flourish on many different types of soil, eh? right? Yeah. Uh, suffer from unusually few insects, pests, or plant disease, so they're hardy. And they tolerate extremes of weather without serious harm. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he used the mustard plant, right? I mean, wild, right? And he puts this parable before him. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, you have heard other preachers say, and I'm not saying that they're wrong, that this is uh, the idea of the unseen kingdom, right? It starts off small. It's just 12 guys. And then it grows so big that it kind of takes over. And then we think of, and maybe you think of, or maybe 
Western preachers talk about in Ezekiel 17, where it talks about Israel and the nation of Israel, and it, and it uses the term of a cedar. I'm going to read it to you. If you're a note taker, it's Ezekiel 17, 23. It says, On a mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And in Ezekiel, if we take that in harmony with this, we can see where people would say, hey, these birds are these nations, not just Israel, but the nations, the Gentiles that are coming to be a part of this kingdom. Yes, that's a way of looking at it. In Ezekiel, it seems like these birds are under the tree and they're in the shade, which I think matters. In here, Jesus says that the birds are in the tree making nests. And I said in the previous parable, if you take them in context of Matthew, that these birds might be false teachers, false prophets, false teachers, or, or false teachings, sorry, that are worming its way into the kingdom, and that's why they're there, because we appear to have birds be not good in the previous parable, snatching away the seed. My theory, you can, you can look up other commentators who have PhDs and degrees, and, and maybe they'll have a, a different view so we see here this kingdom of this mustard seed. But I also want you to see something here too. And this is interesting. He talks about a field. And now he, 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 he takes his lens of the whole field and he zooms down to the garden. Do you see it in the text there? He says he, he spreads this in the field and then this is the biggest of all the garden plants. When I say garden in church, what do you think of? Nobody? Bueller? Do you guys need more coffee? Because I've had mine. The Eden, right? Hopefully, hopefully the Garden of Eden, the first garden. Do you think it's possible that Jesus is having that in mind also as he's talking about, and, and, as we're going to get to the, to the leaven and the bread, is it possible that Jesus knows that in John, if you read the Gospel of John, that him talking about being the bread of life is going to be right on the heels of these parables here, and also of the feeding of the people, the miracles of Jesus that we're going to see in the next chapter. I'm pumped about chapter 14. Hopefully you guys are. And so he's bringing us back from the field into the garden, a smaller area. And he says, and this garden was meant just not for Adam and Eve, but for all of, the, all of the people groups of the earth. They were told to subjugate the entire earth and make it all part of the garden. So it was really the garden that was supposed to grow and take over the earth, not the earth that was supposed to invade the garden. And I think we see that here with this mustard seed. Perhaps I'm reaching, so we'll continue to go uh, with the next parable here with the leaven. Now last week we talked about how leaven appears throughout Scripture to be a negative connotation. In fact, he will tell his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, right? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? We didn't bring bread. And he's like, no, man, the teachings. In fact, Jesus continually talks to parables and then rebukes his disciples. So show of hands, like, is that encouraging to you this morning? If you ever read the Bible and you think, man, I, I'm not really getting this, do you know that you're the same as the disciples who also had to come back to Jesus and, and ask him? And so it's, so it's okay. You're, you're, in, you're in good graces. But we have the leaven as this parable for. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So, yes, this could be a picture of the growth of the kingdom, right? This could be a picture of the, uh, the uh, growth of the gospel getting into the world and kind of permeating till it reaches everywhere. 
It could be that. It could be this unseen force that just continues to, to grow. It also could be false doctrine that worms its way into the church and then continues to also permeate until where Matthew, well, Matthew will later record where Jesus says, you know, in the end, uh, is it Matthew? Shoot, now I'm confused because I'm reading so many other things. Anyway, wherever it is, and you can write this down, you can Google it and find exactly where this is. Sorry about that. But, you know, in the end of the age, people are going to turn away from sound doctrine. They're going to want tickling ears. And so it appears to me that the church is only going to continue to get farther and farther away from Christ, not closer and closer as time goes on, as we'll continue to let in false teachers and false preachers and false doctrine. In fact, I think it's Timothy, even doctrine of demons. And so it could be that, that this is leaven. We talked about in uh, Matthew 16, that's where he tells them to beware of this false leaven. And as we're going to see again in John, if you want to, John 6, we read this morning for communion, Jesus is the bread of life. He's going to feed the 5,000 here in just a little bit. So I think what we're really talking about here is growth. Really. I mean, if we get down to the crux of it. So the first one is the mystery of the kingdom, that the kingdom comes in a way that we might not expect. And the second thing is the way that the kingdom grows. The kingdom grows in a way we might not expect. Because the fact of the matter is that the kingdom grows by people like you and me being faithfully obedient to the gospel call, to the Great Commission. Because you faithfully pray, people come to Christ. Because you faithfully share, people come to Christ. I am humbled by scriptures that say that God takes the foolish things of the world I think, well, I must, I must be a pretty big fool if he called me to be a preacher. And I pray that I would be a fool for Christ and not for the world. And so I think this is talking about growth, not only the kingdom growth, but also for us to be aware of deceptive growth that can make its way in. But that brings us up to where we should be this morning. So all that's the introduction. Thanks for joining us. Hidden treasure. So this is the next parable, parable five, the parable of hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You've heard this probably preached before, and you've heard them say, Jesus is the treasure. And that's not wrong. Would we be willing to give up everything for Christ? And yes, I'm pausing for dramatic effect. But the fact of the matter is, the question stands. Because he himself said, if you love father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter more than me, then you're not worthy of me. Jesus said these things. People wanted to follow them, and he said, hey, Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. The rich guy came to him and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. He said, all right, have you kept the law? He says, yeah, I've kept all of these laws from the day I was young. He said, well, that's fine. Sell everything you have and then come follow me. And so the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Are you willing with joy to go and sell all that you have to buy it? I think of movies that are treasure hunting movies, and I think of the romance of treasure hunting. You know some of the movies. 
National Treasure with, you know, Nicolas Cage, Pirates of the Caribbean with Johnny Depp, uh, The Hobbit with, I don't know who, but the Dragon Smaug, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, and, and uh, Indiana Jones to kind of reach back a little way, Tintin for Asher, who I know loves, you know, Tintin. And then if you, if you know this movie, you might not have thought that it's actually The Goonies, right? That's a treasure hunting movie. I'm sure you have your own faves. But think of the romance that happens in these movies. And I don't mean romance like, you know, romance. I just mean we tend to romance the idea of finding treasure, right? We, as children, love the idea. Just to show of hands, how many of you as kids ever made or had somebody make for you a fake treasure map and shared it with your brothers and sisters and hid stuff outside or in your house, right? I mean, that's super common. And if you haven't, I'm super sad for your childhood. But the fact of the matter is we love this idea of finding hidden treasure. There's something mysterious about it. There's something majestic about it, right? But the fact of the matter is what Jesus is saying here is to actually find this treasure is going to cost you something. In fact, it will cost you everything. Matthew 6, earlier, right, 33 through 34, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day is its own trouble. Or how about Ecclesiastes? You know, Solomon, who is the richest and wisest king who ever lived, and he writes... He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so we romanticize treasure. And I think we under-realize the cost that Jesus says. Now, I want to go back to that in just a minute because the second one is very much like it. So parable 6 then, so follow me. Put a pin in that parable. Let's move on. Chapter, uh, verse, uh, parable 6. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So again, Jesus said a very similar story. This guy is is actually searching for pearls, finds one of immense value, and so he too goes back, sells all that he has to buy this one pearl. Some similarities in this text. How foolish do these people appear to everyone who know them that they're willing to get rid of everything for this field and for this pearl? Well, it's not foolish when you understand the value. Uh, Second thing, not in common, but interesting. One is actively searching for a pearl. One is not. I came to Christ not searching for Christ. Perhaps you came to Christ actually seeking salvation. I'll tell you a little bit about my story because it's not about me and then we'll move on in case you haven't heard it. Uh, I went to a church originally because I wanted to get married and that's where I think you find a good girl is at church. So I went to church and then I heard the gospel, realized I was going to hell and instead wanted Christ far more than a woman and then by his grace I also met my woman at church and so she's in the nursery right now so I can talk about her freely without her turning red. But here you have this pearl, and so Jesus tells these two parables back-to-back of something of immense value. Both of them are something expensive that is worth losing everything over. Philippians 3.8, Paul would say, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In his commentary, uh, exalting Jesus in Matthew, the writer says, Because the kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for, we joyfully let go of all things in order to passionately take hold of one thing. And then he goes on a little bit later to say, We come to Christ because he offers great reward. He is great reward. Now, I don't want to be... David Downer. I think there's a second meaning to these parables. I think when we talk about cost, we we have to examine a different kind of cost. May it cost, I think as Americans, if we're honest, it probably doesn't cost us a whole lot to be Christians. Perhaps that's going to change. Um, Perhaps it did cost you something to become a Christian. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is worth it. Are you willing to give everything for him? But here's the other way I think that this applies, and I think it probably, in my opinion, applies better. Earlier in his parables, Jesus talks about the field being the world. Remember, the sower goes out, and he sows his seed into the field, and then he explains the parable to his disciples, and he says, the field is the world, Right? And then at the end of the age, his angels are going are gonna, to, uh, you know, they're going to bring these people in. They're going to sort them out and stuff like that. You can find it. It's in chapter 13, okay? 1338 is where it is. The field is the world. There's problems with this, these two parables in understanding the traditional way, and here's, here, here's what they are. What possibly, first of all, Jesus didn't hide himself. Jesus openly proclaimed who he was. Now, he strategically would leave when he was being uh, pursued by the wrong people so that he died at the exact time he was supposed to die. But Jesus did not hide hide himself. He publicly proclaimed the kingdom. That was his entire ministry for three years, publicly proclaiming the kingdom. So Jesus isn't a treasure hidden in a field. Jesus is out there for everybody to see. In fact, he went to those who rule during that time, Pontius Pilate and and, and Herod. Secondly, if if we're honest, Scripture is very clear. He tells us in Luke uh, 19.10 that Jesus seeks us. And also in Romans 3.11, he says, no one understands, no one seeks God. In fact, Scripture tells us that without His intervention, we are totally blind and deaf and depraved. So how can we seek a treasure that we can't even find? How can we seek a treasure that's already out in the open that anyone can possess at any time? And then lastly, if that doesn't cause you enough issues, what do you have to give? I mean, just honestly. Do you think that you can purchase salvation? Do you think that something, do you think that somehow in your life you can ever give enough to warrant Jesus saying, yeah, you deserve this? I mean, even if we give our lives, is that enough to purchase this treasure? And so while I think lots of good preachers have done a good job explaining to you, and hopefully I have done an okay job explaining to you that Jesus is worth losing everything. Absolutely. I don't find it 
ultimately convincing that what these parables are about, I think the cost that he's talking about here is his cost for us. I think what he's talking about here is, if you really want to get into some allegory and stuff, and I don't know how far you want to go with this, but is it possible that the Jews are the treasure hidden in the field and that Jesus buys the entire world so that he can have his chosen people? I mean, think about it. You don't hide a treasure in a field and then forget about it generally. The treasure is meant to do good. It's meant to be a source of wealth for the entire generations afterwards that would also inherit the field. And yet Israel, the chosen people of God, have been hidden away and are not the royal priesthood that they were supposed to be and created for God's chosen people. And so instead what he does is he sells everything, leaving heaven to come and buy the entire world so that he can also have his people. Maybe. Is it possible? You tell me. Secondly, with the pearl. Pearls are very different. Ladies, can I get an amen? Pearls are different than other jewels, from my understanding. I'm not a gemologist. My understanding is, is that pearls cannot be cut and retain their value. Okay, thanks. So gemstones, my understanding is, when I, when I went to, after, uh, when I saved up my money and I was going to buy my wife a ring, I went to the ring stores, jewelry stores, and uh, asked them how I should find a ring and got a bunch of information. I did my research and I tried to do that and I understand that there's something called cut. It's part of the five C's or whatever. And the cut also determines the value of the diamond. So you might have a really good diamond, but it might be cut really poorly and so it's not worth as much as it could be. That's not the way it works with pearls. If you cut a pearl, you only lessen its value. Since the pearl is unable to be divided, is it possible that in this section, the pearl that Jesus is actually searching for is the church that will be made up of both Jews and Gentiles alike and will be grafted in in such a way as you cannot separate it because it is one body? I don't know. But I think so often what we do when we get to these sections is we talk about the cost for us and we neglect the cost for him. Jesus paid it all. Jesus left everything. Jesus was humbled and beaten and had the, the full wrath, the full measure of God's wrath poured out on him so that he could purchase you. I think that is the cost of the kingdom. Which then brings us to our final parable. Or maybe not. Depends on if you see the last thing as parable 8 or not. I don't know. But because I'm the preacher, this is the last parable, parable 7, because it's a nice Bible number, right? Matthew 13, 47 through 50. It's a parable of the net. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down on, and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who is Jesus talking to right now? Now just think about it. Put yourself here. Who are the men that Jesus is talking to right now? These are fishermen. Again, don't you think Jesus, in his wisdom, did this purposefully? Some of these guys literally left their nets to follow Jesus. They were in the middle of mending their nets, and Jesus says, follow me, and so they leave. And now Jesus is saying, finally, 
And by the way, this is, this, is, this is why I think it's parable number seven. And then parable number eight, if you want to say that, is their response to this. Okay, so all the rest of the parables find their fulfillment here, don't they? He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about, he's talking about how the kingdom is going to come. It's going to come like a net. The whole reason a net works is because the fish don't see it coming. Right? That's why they can just drag it, and, and, and it just catches them into it. And so it's the mystery. How does this work? What kind of fish are they going to catch? They don't know. It's under the surface. The kingdom, the net, is a mystery to what it's going to haul in. Secondly, they don't haul it in until it's full because the kingdom has to grow. Who would haul in a net half full of fish? And then also the cost. It costs these men labor to mend their nets. It costs these men muscle to pull the nets in. It costs them time to sort the fish. And inside this net, there's going to be everything from tuna to flounder. Everything from starfish, maybe, I don't know, to jellyfish, to sea turtles. I don't know where they fish. And he says here, at the end of the age, they're going to be sorted out. And so Jesus is using this to talk to fishermen, to have them understand, and some of them will need to understand this, that when the net is out, they don't discriminate on what kind of fish they scoop up, do they? Meaning, as we're going to see, that they will be sent to not only the people of Jerusalem, but also to the end of the earth. That Jesus, in his net, in his kingdom, he's just going to scoop, and he's not going to discriminate against Jew and Gentile, black and white, male or female, rich or poor, young or old, slave or free, any of those things. And that the only time it's going to be gathered in, the only time the church age is going to stop, is when the church is full, when the net is full, according to Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 7, his sermon on the mount we have to remember that every... Look, you remember how I said context is king? Never ever read Matthew 13 and, do, and just forget about Matthew 1 through 12. There was a build. There's a whole thing through to get there. Same thing with any other book of the Bible. Don't quote to me, you know, 2 Timothy 3 whatever and forget about 2 Timothy 1, 1 through that and then from there forward. Don't do that. You're abusing your Bibles. That was free. Okay, so Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who will, does the will of my Father who is heaven, on that day he will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these things? And for those who I don't know, those are I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I would assume that as they fish, even weeds are caught in their nets. I know they would be if I fished out at the place where my where I usually fish. Also understand that this parable is the only parable that's been, well, I guess not, twice told and twice explained that at the end of the age there's going to be a sorting. So if this is the eighth parable to you, that's fine, but it's the last one that we're going to talk about, which is the one of a scribe. So if you want to look with me at 51 and 52 of chapter 13, he asks them, have you understood all these things? And their answer was yes. And so then he says, okay, so, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven 
is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, uh, what is new and what is old. Again, in context. A scribe is somebody who's supposed to rewrite and understand the word. This is their job. Back before the printing press, these scribes would sit in their cramped little dimly lit areas and they'd have one copy of Torah on one side and they'd have some blank parchment on the other side and all day, every day, they'd, they'd write their quill over there and they'd transcribe, but they would also be studiers of the word. They would be like the lawyers of that day where people would come and they would understand the intricacies of Scripture and therefore be able to argue cases like back in Moses' day when he... Uh, brought on people. And so Jesus would ask them, and so I would ask you, have you understood all these things? And here's what Jesus wants you to understand, and here's what I would hope you would understand before you can say yes. We're sinners and we deserve hell. But God loves us. And not just collectively, but individually. He loves you. And he loves you enough to give you an offer One that you can deny, one that you can spit in the face of, one you can turn your back on, because that's your free will in this situation. So where does God's predestination, your free will, that's another sermon, buy me coffee, we'll talk about. But the fact of the matter is, what he says here is at the end of the age, there is going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment that we cannot avoid. And that even in this room, there might be wheat and tares growing together. That should scare you. It should scare you enough at least to double-check your own heart and to come before a holy God and again cry out for mercy and forgiveness of sin, only by which is through Christ. That is what Jesus is asking them. Do you understand all these things? They say yes. He says, good. If you understand these things, you're like somebody who understands the word, who has the treasure of the kingdom. Do you see how he ties in these other parables? They have the treasure, and so therefore, bring it out and distribute it freely. Old things of the treasure, Old Testament, new things, the new utterances that God's going to give you. So now we have the Bible, the full 66 books. You have the old, you have the new. Let's bring it out to each other. Let's share it with one another. Understand and study God's word. Be a scribe. If you understand these things and your answer is yes, are we studying our Bibles? Because the fact of the matter is Jesus teaches about this kingdom that although unrecognized and rejected, it demands a response. And even though it might be currently hidden in plain sight, it is accomplishing its purpose and will one day be revealed to all, either to their glory or destruction. So I'm excited about chapter 14 because what chapter 14 is going to do is Matthew is going to give us real-life illustration of these parables. We're going to see them acted out real-time in Jesus' ministry. But the fact of the matter is, beloved, they're being acted out right now, even in this very room, even on the rest of today. I don't know what you have plans for. Maybe you're going to stay for the barbecue. Maybe you're going to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. I don't know. Maybe you are Grandma and Grandpa, and you're going to leave so people can come to your house. But the fact of the matter is, the kingdom of heaven is now. It was then, yes, absolutely, but it's, it's no less now. Because here's the thing, we're farther down the harvest. The wheat and the tares, they are growing together. And I would posit, the closer we get to harvest time, the more and more those wheat and those tares are going to show their fruit. And so my beloved, I would pray 
that you would listen to a different king that's more local. Because what he wrote also applies. It'd be the Burger King. Here's what he said. And I was getting fast food and I was like, I have to use this. I can't not use this. If you understood what the king said in his word, then you should apply today. Because the fact of the matter is, the king has a job for you. And in fact, our king has so good, it is a career to crave for. And you don't even have to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever. You can do it right where you are. There's no special training, no special uniform. You don't have to deal with bad customers and your product. Way better. I also want to prepare you for the burgers we're about to go eat. So listen, my friend, here, the fact of the matter is this. These parables, Jesus taught in parables so that in his wisdom, those who smelled the scent of the fragrance of the kingdom would be drawn closer into it. But those who were turned off by what they considered to be the stench of the kingdom would be repulsed all the more. It is my prayer that as the kingdom is now, that you would be drawn closer to Christ by these things. And that you too, like the disciples, as he said, have you understood these things? That you would with joy be able to say, yes. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your kingdom. We do ask that your kingdom would come. God, we praise you and thank you that we get to live in a nation that has given us the freedom to gather together, to sing songs together, to pursue you in your kingdom. And as we look at the melting pot that is America, we are astounded by the melting pot that is your kingdom. That you have said that the net will go out and every tribe and every nation will be a part of your kingdom, of a freedom that all other freedoms pale in comparison to. And so on this 4th of July, God, we give you honor and glory and praise because of what your Son has done. It's in that name we praise you. Amen. Let's uh, sing a song of praise. Listen, so here's the deal.